together uh, this evening. We come to what is perhaps one of the most significant pivotal points in all of John's apocalypse this evening. And we're going to slow down our pace a little bit, at least as it's been going with some degree of speed in recent weeks, as we just want to look at the first eight verses of Revelation 6 uh, together this evening. Uh, Revelation 6, verse 1 through 8, which gives us famously what's known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So let me read our verses for us and pray for God's blessing on our study, and then we'll begin. So let us hear now as Christ speaks to us once again through his triumphant word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider and a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together once again. Our Father, we do ask that you would help us to receive a fullness of the Spirit this evening, that we might understand the truth of this mysterious yet majestic word that you've given to us. Help us to humble ourselves before the authority of your Son, his sovereignty, his rule and reign, that we might love him evermore. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. A ministerial mentor of sorts of mine was preaching through Revelation several years ago. And he began the sermon series in his church's morning service. And that sermon series continued in the morning service until he reached our text this evening. And suddenly that series had a great shift within it and moved from the morning service to the evening service. And from there on out, Revelation 6 to the end of the book didn't take place in the morning of his church. It took place at the end, in the evening of his church. And the reason why he switched from morning to evening is really beside the point. I'm more interested in the fact that he simply switched from morning to evening at this point in John's apocalypse. Because it's here when we come to chapter 6 of Revelation that we get to a point that many interpreters, uh, many preachers, many theologians, as it were, they shake hands and agree to go their separate ways, never to meet again till the end of chapter 20 with the resurrection of the dead. And it's quite possible in the coming weeks that you might feel as though, me or anyone else preaching up here, that you might feel like it's necessary to shake hands and part company, never to come back again in the evening until we get to the end of chapter 20, when it seems like Christians once again agree with what is exactly happening in John's apocalyptic vision. 
But I hope that you'll stick around in, in weeks to come, because we certainly are getting to the meat and marrow of the great mystery that is John's revelation, the meat and marrow that often befuddles, often confuses uh, many Christians. But as I think we're going to see, not just tonight, but in weeks to come, Lord willing, there is a great, simple, clear truth that Jesus is just telling his people over and over and over again through these bizarre and even wild visions that we get in these apocalyptic thoughts and sights that John receives. And so we come to a text today that is popularly known as the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. You might be surprised at the degree to which, especially in the Western world, uh, this text has occupied and even captivated popular attention. You'll find it in a famous painting of Albrecht Durer of centuries gone by. Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, you can find in an X-Man movie. Even the four most famous atheists of the 21st century. There's a volume published on them as though they were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And what I want to help you understand this evening is just simply the truth about these horsemen. And then what we should learn about God's judgment from the simple vision that John receives. And so we'll just walk through the text in two simple movements. These eight verses first, we're going to notice the four horses, and then we're going to notice four truths. So the four horses of judgment that I think show us, at least among other things we might say, four truths about judgment. So before we get to verse 1, if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, you need to know where we left off last week. In fact, it might be even good at this pivotal point in Revelation to remind ourselves in quick compass of the first five chapters, right? John is in the Spirit on a Sunday. And the Lord appears to him, speaks to him, Jesus Christ, with a voice like a trumpet. And in chapter 1, the Apostle John receives this grand vision of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ among the lampstands, which are his churches. And in chapters 2 and 3, John gets these seven letters to seven local churches, Jesus said, about the things that are. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus summons him, John, through a doorway to heaven, that he might see visions about the things that will be. So, even John's vision begins to move across tenses from the present time to at least some sense of the future time. And we saw in chapter 4, two weeks ago, that it's there in the center of heaven that the sovereign creator reigns from the throne. And in his right hand is this scroll. And this scroll holds the destiny God's sovereign plans for salvation, vindication, the consummation of all things. In his right hand, the scroll of the destiny of all humanity. And then you turn the page into chapter 5 as that vision continued there in heaven. And an angelic voice boomed forward. Who is worthy to open this scroll in the Father's right hand? So who has the authority? Who has the ability to open this scroll? And if you remember from last week, that investigative query went out into all the universe, and no one was found to open this scroll. Meaning, if this scroll doesn't get opened, God's plans for the salvation and vindication of His people, the consummation of all of His creation, those plans are going to go unrealized. And then if you were with us last week, you might remember how it's as though John's weeping there loudly, an elder reaches down on his shoulder and says, Fear not, the Lion of Judah has conquered and then it's as though he hears hoofbeats of a lamb who just stood up, who just stood out, and has now started marching to the Father's throne. He doesn't just march up to the throne, this sovereign Savior. 
he takes the scroll. Now, at the end of chapter 5, you can even glance down with your eyes there. This kind of spontaneous concert of praise for Jesus Christ erupts in all the universe. As this rippling-like reality, a concert of praise that began in chapter 4 with the four living creatures that then soon swallowed up the 24 elders, that then swallows up these millions likely of angels and gets to the point at the end of chapter 5 where every voice, everything on earth, under the earth, in heaven and in the sea is praising this Lamb who is worthy. So that's where we are in chapter 6. But you might remember, kids... What we were told about that scroll is not just that it was written on the front and the back and it contained the plans of the destiny of all humanity. It was also sealed, wasn't it? It was seven seals. Now, if you know anything about the ancient world, it wasn't until those seals would be broken that the plans on the scroll could begin to be enacted, could begin to be realized. And so what we're going to see tonight is Jesus is going to open the first four seals. It won't be to the end of chapter, or the beginning, I'm sorry, of chapter 8 that we seal the seventh seal finally open. But the first four, and the four horses they release, these riders occupy our attention. Notice verse 1 of chapter 6 once again. John says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. Now put yourselves in John's shoes at this time. There's been this great concert of praise and joy. We have found the one who's worthy to open the scroll. This scroll that's going to bring salvation to a persecuted, oppressed, afflicted, hurting people. And then the scroll is now starting to be opened. The first seal is broken. This living creature, the heavenly being there before the throne announces, come. Now what do you think John would think is coming forth from this scroll? Uh, You might be surprised as we read the text. He might have been surprised to discover these writers of the apocalypse burst forth. Or if you know John well, it actually might not have been altogether surprising that writers of the apocalypse burst forth. Because these four writers that we're going to look at tonight in brief mention simply mirror the four writers that burst forth in Zechariah chapter 6, a vision of which John would have been entirely familiar with. And the first horseman, this first horse, is the horseman of conquest. Look at verse 2. John says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer. You're probably not surprised to know that many people have wondered for centuries and centuries about the identity of this rider of the right horse in verse 2. Many people, certainly in the Protestant tradition, have thought it's none other than Jesus Christ himself. You might know how at the end of Revelation, particularly chapter 19, there we find Jesus returning on a white horse, wearing a crown, as a warrior king against no one, against whom no one can stand. Others think it's actually a counterfeit of Jesus Christ, because we're going to see this in weeks to come, Lord willing, in the ensuing chapters, that Satan often kind of gives this false counterfeit to the Lord himself, so maybe it's none other than the devil riding this white horse, or perhaps even the Antichrist himself. I actually think, as we're going to see, there's so much similarity between all four riders that there's not supposed to be this distinguishable distinction of the first rider compared to the other ones. What's more important for John, and certainly for Jesus Christ, as the scroll begins to be enacted in human history, is less who the man is but what his mission is. 
And the mission, of course, according to verse 2, is conquest. This is a warrior king that's going to bring tyranny, that's going to bring oppression through battle and through warfare. So that's the first horse. The second horseman is the horseman of slaughter. Look at verse 3 and 4. The second seal is open. The second living creature says, again, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the red rider, this horseman of slaughter, he has the power to take away peace on earth. You remember, don't we, in the Christmas season where the angels, there on the night that Jesus was born, they sang what? The song of peace on earth there in the sky before the shepherds. And here is Jesus unleashing upon the earth this red rider who is given a sword and he's going to overthrow all peace in the earth, leading to slaughter, people killing one another. And I think it's actually quite significant that this word slay here in verse 4, that's more literally uh, slaughtered, John often uses in Revelation to speak about the slaughter of the saints, those martyred for their faith. And so we'll even see them, Lord willing, next week as we get to the end of this chapter, these martyrs that are around the throne seemingly caught up, as it were, in this second seal being opened. So you have the horsemen, number one, this first horseman of conquest. Number two, the horsemen of slaughter. And number three, the horsemen of famine. Verse 5 tells us the third seal is open. The third living creature shouts, come. And John says, I looked and behold, this time, not a white horse, kids, not a red horse, but a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. So kids, when you think of holding scales in your hand, what kind of image comes to mind? Maybe it's something about measuring weight. In the ancient world, scales were very important when it came to times of famine because you had to weigh out rations of food to make sure that people got enough food. And it seems as though this first horse, he's bringing conquest upon the earth. And that conquest is now going to bring about the next three seals being opened because what comes with conquest but slaughter? What comes with conquest but famine? But interestingly enough, in this third seal, Jesus interrupts the narrative because he surely is the voice speaking in verse 6, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. I need to know something about those ancient measurements to make sense of the famine and the inflation that follows with this third seal. So a denarius was a day's wage, so a normal day's wage. And then a quart of wheat, that was basically a day's worth of wheat. And then what you see there is three quarts of barley. That's three days' worth of barley. And each of them, at this time, costs a denarius, which would be something like 8 to 16 times the normal cost of what that kind of food should cost in the ancient world, meaning it's a time of famine, it's a time of pestilence, it's a pandemic when food is scarce, and so it costs a whole lot more. But the, the scope of this famine seems somewhat limited, because you see Jesus at the end of verse 6 talks about not harming the oil and the wine. So the famine is not stretching out to everything. There's a variety of different ways we could take the oil and the wine, but I think it's meant to tell us is that Jesus in his mercy is limiting this rider of famine. That the famine isn't so total and widespread that it consumes everything and everyone. No, it's only going to be a part that he's going to consume, which is only further solidified by what we see in the fourth rider with the fourth seal in verse 7 and 8. 
which is the horseman of death. I was talking with a brother after one of the morning services today, and he was sharing with me a nightmare that he had had last night. And somehow we began to talk about nightmares that we may have or uh, may not have. And I told him the nightmare that I have that's rather recurring in my own life, and it's rather simple and not necessary for me to mention, but nevertheless, there's a nightmare that shows up in my own life here and there. And kids, I wonder if you have a nightmare that shows up in your life with some degree, perhaps of regularity, maybe something that's happened in the past. Uh, some of you parents or even grandparents might have nightmares about something that could happen in the future. And you wonder, as John is seeing these first four seals broken and the plans unleashed that they contain, if he doesn't begin to have this overwhelming sense of Christ is unleashing a nightmare upon the earth. Because certainly the culmination of all of these first four horsemen comes in verse 7 and 8. Again, you'll notice in verse 7, the fourth seal's broken. The fourth living creature says, come. Verse 8 says, and I looked, behold, a pale horse. So kids, the first one's white, second one's red, third one's black. This one, speaking more of kind of like an ashen gray green color. Uh, maybe sometimes you've come downstairs perhaps in the morning and told your parents, I feel really sick. Or you come across someone who says, man, I'm feeling really sick. And someone might respond, yeah, you look like death. It's that pale kind of green gray color. And that's certainly what the horse is looking like here. And this is the only rider that gets named. You'll notice as the text continues, its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority, death and Hades, over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So the picture there is rather gruesome, isn't it? Death on his horse is marching through the world. And he's going to take a fourth of the population. And it's though Hades, which is the abode of death, the home of death, the place of death, is like the wagon that he's carting behind to just pick up all the bodies that death consumes along the way. But just as it was with the third seal, you see here Christ's mercy, right? 75% of the earth will not be touched by death in Hades. Only a fourth are going to suffer this seal being broken and opened. So these are the four horses. First is the horse of conquest. Second is the horse of slaughter. Third is the horse of famine. And fourth, it's the horse of death. And that all seems simple and clear enough, doesn't it? But the great question that many people often have when you come to texts like this in Revelation is, when is that going to take place? Has that already taken place? And everything in between. Well, I want to begin to sketch out an answer, and I'm not going to give you a full answer because I think coming weeks as we work through the subsequent chapters will give you a full answer, certainly of, of my own view and those that are going to be preaching the text share basically the same view that I have with some variants here and there. But what you need to know significantly for these seals, is if you just kind of make your way, we're not going to read it, just glance your way through the end of the chapter. What you're going to find out, Lord willing, next week is by the time we get to the end of chapter 6, in this sequence of events, Jesus has returned and the final judgment has come. Now, if you've never heard that before, you need to understand why that's actually quite true in Revelation. Because Revelation, you may have heard this before, we've talked about it in past weeks, it functions on these series of sevens. You've got seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets. And what these sevens are doing 
are giving us different vantage points on what I would argue is the time between Jesus' ascension to the Father's right hand and His coming again in glory at the end of the age. So the way you want to think about Revelation in the coming weeks, and you're going to see this borne out, I trust Lord willing, next week if you come back, is you, you want to think about it through the lens of uh, instant replays. So if you're a sports fan, you'll track along with what I'm saying. If you're not, you'll know what I'm saying. So consider a sport like American football. So you, you have a wide receiver that's caught a ball in the end zone, but the referee has ruled him as catching it out of bounds. But the coach of said receiver wants to challenge that play, so he throws his flag and it goes into instant replay, doesn't it? So if you're watching that game, what do you see then? That same play, different vantage points, different angles, at different speeds, But you're all watching the same thing. And you're going to see that work itself out in Revelation. The seven seals are telling the same story. But seven bowls are just from a different vantage point with increased clarity and information telling us about this time between Jesus' ascension to the return of Jesus Christ himself. So the four seals, the way that I think you must take them, in balance with the entirety of the book, is it represents the time, the experience of the church throughout the ages leading up to Christ's return. Because you tell me, since Jesus has ascended to heaven, when has there not been war, slaughter, famine, pestilence, pandemic, and death? It's always been happening. These four horsemen continue to ride through the earth even today. And don't we know that? I trust in 2020 with a COVID pandemic riding again, even in our time. So these are the four horses, but the four truths is how we want to end this evening. The four truths of judgment that these four horses reveal. One way you can get at that is by thinking about an earthquake that shook New England on October 29, 1727. It was strong enough, this earthquake in New England, that it laid low, not a small number of chimneys and walls and even very strong homes. And so the next day, colonists in New England did what they always did at that time in light of such a frowning providence. They crowded into local churches for a day of fasting and humiliation. One young up-and-coming preacher at the time, he was quite young, certainly not terribly famous as he would become, named Jonathan Edwards, said this in his sermon After the earthquake, earthquakes and signs in the heavens may often have natural causes, yet they nevertheless be ordered so as to be forerunners of great changes and threatenings of judgment. In other words, these natural disasters are meant to prepare us for a coming judgment that is on the way when the sun returns. And in the same way, when you see these four horses, you see these four riders, they're meant to prepare us in a variety of different ways that we might respond to the truth, not only of who Jesus Christ is, but what he's doing in the world right now. So what I want to do as we begin to close is give you four truths. Four truths, not just about Jesus Christ, but four truths about his judgment that we see from these seals. Number one, the four seals show the authority Christ has over history. That probably is the main point of the first four seals, the authority that Christ has over history. The the only reason that the war comes, and tease that out in your own meditative mind, the fullness of what that means. The only reason the war comes, the slaughter comes, the pandemic comes, the famine comes, death comes, is because Jesus said, off you go, writer. I've opened that seal. Now go do your job. 
And you'll notice if you glance down again at the first, second, and fourth riders, Jesus gives them something. This is not authority that they have in themselves to ride throughout all the earth. This is the sovereign summons of the sovereign Savior who is now beginning to enact God's plans for human history for the good of his people. The fourth seal shows us, number one, the authority Christ has over history. Number two, the calamity that Christ brings on the wicked. The calamity that Christ brings on the wicked. Zechariah 6, which is seemingly in the back of John's mind when he observes this vision. It's all about these horses that God sends throughout the earth, not just to patrol it, but to punish those people that oppose his people. And in the same way, Jesus is sending forth these riders as an act of judgment upon those who slaughter his people, who oppress his people. It's not just about his authority. It's about the calamity that falls on the wicked. Number three, it's about the totality of Christ's judgment. And I don't mean by that everyone is going to be judged because the third and fourth seal make it clear that there's a, a large portion even that aren't going to have to endure the suffering of whatever that seal being opened means. But kids, why do you think there are four horses? Those four, of course, in that ancient world would have been representative of the four points on the compass saying that his judgment is going worldwide, that there's this totality of judgment on the way. And finally, it tells us about the certainty of Christ's coming victory. The certainty of Christ's coming victory. Because imagine if you're John sitting at this time, watching this vision, seeing these stunning views up above, and you're part of a persecuted people, an oppressed minority in the Roman Empire, and you see that Jesus is beginning to fight for his people. That what we'll see certainly by the end of next week, by the end of all the seals, that Jesus has opened the book of history, and all of these writers, they're signaling forth the coming victory of Jesus Christ, which is going to come at the end of this first round of history and revelation, the end of these seven seals. So, anytime you see war, understand this, anytime you see death, plagues, famine, pandemic, and even slaughter, you know that Jesus is sovereignly executing God's plan. And that's a terrifying thing to those who oppose Jesus Christ, isn't it? Because that judgment will eventually fall on you. But isn't it the most comforting thing to suffering, lowly, oppressed, and persecuted people to know as certainly as you see that plague and that pandemic, so certain is the final victory that Christ is going to win for his people. Because he's already won it, hasn't he, as he spilled his blood at the cross of Calvary, the blood by which we overcome. So this conquering king is setting forth his conquering riders, reminding us that it's only those who trust in him that will therefore conquer in the end. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves before the authority and sovereignty of your Son. Lord, we admit that we often come to these visions and find little more than confusion and mystery that makes it difficult to understand how we're to live more faithfully with a heart of perseverance in the midst of our struggle. Lord, help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ seated at your right hand. Set our minds on things above where Christ is seated. Help us in the midst of all of the writer's work that still comes on the four corners of the earth to trust evermore in the coming victory of your Son that we might indeed trust in Him 
and thereby conquer in him as well. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we stand together, let us do so as we want to sing with eyes of faith and hearts of hope of the great joy that is ours in Jesus Christ, not only in his second coming, but also in his first coming, singing hymn printed there in your bulletins, number 207, Good Christian Men Rejoice.